Welcome back, Illuminators. I am Kelly Powers. And I am Brent Phillips. And you are listening to Illuminates, the podcast that looks back at the entertainment properties of TV and film's awkward teenage years, the 1980s, lovingly recalling them through both the rose-colored glasses of childhood memory, me, as well as mercilessly dissecting them under the harsh, jaded eye of today's sophisticated audience, <clears throat> me. Um... And ultimately deciding is the <laughs> ultimately deciding is this property worth another go? Uh, does it still hold up at all? And if it uh, if it is worth revisiting, what would you do differently, if anything? Um, first, Brent, I don't know about you, but I just I wanted to take a moment to say, oh, the response from our first podcast. <laughs> I know. I mean, through the roof. We Thank couldn't. You, we everyone. could never have anticipated the floodgate that we were opening with that first podcast. And Man, uh, all the all the galas I had to turn down. I mean, it was it was really insane. You guys went over the top. But do you want to pull something out of the mailbag and just read to uh, to the audience there? Uh, a lot of them were really similar stuff about life changing. <laughs> um, they don't. They're never going to wash their ears again. Yeah, because yeah. it was just so good. You know, I I, I especially uh, appreciated. Those who, who wrote in saying that uh, they were pledging themselves to be illuminators, not illuminators. There we go. And uh, I, I really, that touched me. Um, all said in jest, of course. Uh, we have not <laughs> at posted the time, them yet. <laughs> at the time of this recording, we have not yet posted our first episode. It's coming soon. Uh, It'll be good to post two at once. Hopefully you've, you've listened to that already, and now you've, despite that, decided to move on to this, our second episode. Uh, because, as as quoted by Ming the Merciless in our first episode, that is merely a foretaste <laughs> of what was to come. Uh, I can't really say that without feeling a little dirty with the. Nor, nor should you foretaste. Oh, yeah. I God. feel like I feel like I should watch that episode every day when I wake up just to <laughs> enrich my vocabulary. Yeah. Oof. Um, but, you know, like any traumatizing event you have to suffer through, it will get better. Um, as will our podcast. Um, this time around, we are going to be looking at that classic 80s film starring Matthew Broderick as a cool, lovable teenager who's constantly talking directly to an unseen audience, cracking wise at each comical new development. That film, of course, Richard Donner's Ferris Lady Bueller. Hawk. Oh yes, <laughs> right. What the hell is Lady Hawk? I feel like you know, having seen uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off growing up, and never having seen Lady Hawk, I feel like they watched Lady Hawk and they're like, you know what I like? It's this guy <laughs> talking to the camera. Let's just do a whole movie about that. Yeah, yeah. Some 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 executive was like, like I there, could just. There was a direct line from this movie to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, even though they're like not similar at all. Yeah, but Matthew Broderick is just Ferris Bueller. To be in honest, a fantasy world uh, now, as as per the norm, and the norm granted is only two episodes so far, but per the norm of our setup, I've seen this one a number of times. Yeah, Lady Hawk. This I, is my first. I watch this, and and Brent's coming at it with completely fresh eyes. Um, that being said, even though I watched this a number of times growing up. It never occurred to me how it was... I mean, I recognized that he was the same kid from Ferris Bueller. Right. But it never occurred to me how similar the the mechanism was of this character, 
Matthew Broderick plays Philippe in this movie, um, talking to God, as it was Ferris Bueller talking to the audience through all throughout. And it was watching it with you the other night. It was so obvious. I was just like, <laughs> I, I can't even believe this. But it never occurred to me before then. I don't know. Um, so this is this is Lady Hawk, uh, or or perhaps as it's meant to be pronounced, Lady Hawkier. Yeah. Because for some reason there is a you silent got that trailing e. e. It's you know it's like you know you go to a um, strip mall and it's like oldie towny village. Yeah, <laughs> well, I like see. That. I see. This is a quaint spelling uh-huh. of that combination lady and hawk mm-hmm. that you used all the time in old English. Oldie in the oldie English. Ye old lady hockey. Um, yeah, I, I don't know why, but there it is. Uh, circa 1985, which is right in the sweet spot of, of the 1980s kingdom. Uh, it was... Right in the middle. It and had, Richard Donner. And Richard Donner, solid. It's not expecting that. No, and, and I, again, until we watched it the other night, I never bothered to look at, you know, who directed that film. I was just, I was just a kid enjoying, you know, animals mutating into human beings. You know, if we were, like, well-researched, like, is this his first film? Uh, I can't. Believe. It can't be. But like, if this was his first, I can't be. It's but if the, this, it's towards the beginning. No, because because yeah. he Richard Donner did Superman. Superman was seventy what eight seventy eight. Well, that was before this. All right, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, if it, this was his first film, I would have been like, I'm gonna look for good things from this Richard Donner guy. He knows what's he up. Did, he did a good job. Um, yeah, I, it never occurred to me, but there it is. Uh, and so I don't know. Let's let's just get right. Yeah, let's do into it. this and, and start pulling this apart. Um, so step one, uh, you know, I haven't cut this episode yet, obviously, because we're recording it, <laughs> but there is no way I'm not starting it with the awesome theme to Lady Hawk. So sweet. Now you, so before we saw the movie, you're like, okay, the soundtrack is all done on a Casio yeah, keyboard. Yeah, I like really downplaying I it. I really did. And, and so I'm, I'm just expecting just the most cringy shit ever in it was awesome. Man. I have to I say, really liked it. I don't know that I would go as far as to say it was awesome, but I will definitely admit, let's put it this way: it wasn't not awesome. It was much better than my mind remembered it being, especially given the fact that I watched it numerous times. Yeah, I remembered in my head. I remember just some guy with a Casio keyboard <laughs> playing his keyboard, and being like, you know, if I hold this button down, the track will repeat. <laughs> this is the helicopter sound. Yeah. <laughs> Key change. No, no. it's not. It's, it's not, not that, at, that all. at all. It's totally fine. There's, There's even some catchy moments. Yes. It is. It is clearly his like musical reel though. Like the theme goes. Like I'm. There's no way I'm playing the whole theme for you. No. It's like seven hours long. <laughs> right. But like it goes from like one type of music to another type of music to another type of music. Like I think there's four, and the second one I'm a big fan of. After that, whatever, turn it off. Skip, skip through the credits. Yeah, but like um, at least one of his musical styles is pretty good. Yeah, and the other thing I appreciated about it is later on in the movie when you're when you're about midway in the film, and that theme kicks in again. You're right. They didn't use it for they didn't use it for a, a montage training sequence, but they certainly could have. It <laughs> felt like we were going to see a montage, and I was kind of disappointed that we didn't. Because it would have been perfect for it. Should have trained. It was a theme worthy of montage. It was very much a montage theme. Um, and the just the opening title sequence of I think all we see is that bird flapping right for 
ever. Is that? Well, bird it's like flapping? a specific shot of like just the bird's face. I don't even think he's moving. His wings are moving. She, she's yes. It is Lady Hawk. It's not Man Hawk, people. <laughs> Let's keep this in mind. The first of many animals to be offended by us getting this gender wrong. Um, but Lady Hawk is flapping in slow mo for that opening title sequence. I think for the entire thing, it's oh, just different that, shots. Nothing, of it. Nothing's happening. Yeah. Um, except if the music I, wasn't so enrapturing, it would be a terrible, boring. Yeah. Sequence. The other thing happening is you're looking at all the people who are in this whose names you really do recognize, and you're like, "What? Michelle Pfeiffer? Yeah. What? Richard Richard Donner did this movie. Michelle Pfeiffer, Rucker Howard. Um, I almost said Mickey Rourke. He was like, "No, no, no, no Rucker Howard." <laughs> Dude, Mickey Rourke as Navarre would have been a game changer. Oh, I'm just take a moment to think about that. Oh, I could totally. I think see Mickey him. Rourke should have been the bishop. That would have been sweet. Although the bishop in this movie bishop kind of killed it. So. Yeah, we'll get to him. Um, yeah, so scene one, Lady Hawk. Uh, we open with Matthew Broderick as Philippe the Mouse. His his actual name is Philippe Gaston, but everyone calls him the Mouse because presumably he's small and can wiggle through things and is quick. Uh, yeah, they 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 set the stage about him being able to wiggle through stuff at the very beginning, and it comes up. At the end, because he can get back in, mm -hmm. but at no time in the middle of the movie does it matter that he's like super wiggly or anything. Eh, I don't know. I think we may see some opportunities for him to squeeze through tight spaces when he's being pursued, uh, especially once he's up in the lattice work of the restaurant where he gets the, the tavern where he gets pursued to shortly after the opening. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, okay, like the whole first sequence. I just meant that, like. No, it's like a very specific detail that they don't really mention again. Well, he's he's Philippe the Mouse, and he's he's wiry and quick and, and nimble and small. Um, and, you know, that wasn't much of a stretch for Matthew Broderick at this point in his life. He was never the largest of people, and he is even less so at this point in 1985. Um, and we see him sneaking out of prison in the dungeons of Aquila, uh, on the day of his supposed execution, um, because there are definitely people being hung upstairs in the courtyard. That they show you. Yes. They do not shy away from that. And they're doing them three at a time, because everyone must go. It is a clearance sale at the Dungeons of Aquila, and they have to make room, because as the bishop points out later, no one escapes from the Dungeons of Aquila. This is just a historical fact. So they, so, so they go nuts when he escapes, and it's like... You know, they send every guard after him and all those things, and it's like, because no one escapes from this jail, just cover it up. Let this one thief yeah, just disappear into the wind. It's point of pride, bro. Come on, man. He's, he's as corrupt as the day is long. Just let it go. Just as you have sworn to answer all uh, hate mail to Illuminates <laughs> at gmail.com, Illuminatespodcast at gmail.com, just as you have taken that point of pride upon your shoulders... Um, I just feel like a lot of effort went into <laughs> something you could have just been like, eh, yeah, he no one will ever know. Yeah, so, 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 uh, I guess to be fair, he did immediately leave and then boast about it yeah, so at his earliest opportunity. Philippe is not a master criminal by any stretch of the imagination. He, he breaks out of the prison and when I say break out, what he really does is he, in his cell, he had managed to basically wiggle down a very small drain hole in the floor 
into the sewers. And, you know, grown man couldn't have done it, but a smallish man who maybe could, like, dislocate one shoulder could possibly get through that opening. <laughs> maybe, man. It was really small. Uh, but whatever. And it's then part of the story. he goes down to the sewer, and his original plan is to climb up through the church floor, because there's a ladder going up to the church floor from underneath there. Mm-hmm. And he tries to do that, but uh, there's people up in the yeah, church. Yeah, churches... Church is in, in, session. in session, and there's people up there, and they step on his hands. He's, he's trying to he falls crawl up through the grate, and he falls all the way down in the sewers. And then, because he's fallen so far under the water, he starts kicking and swimming blindly. And it's really just by accident that he kicks all the way to uh, an underwater grate that leads out to the main waterworks. Uh, there's, a, there's a pre-bent hole in that grate. Uh, Philippe did not bend that hole in the grate. There was just bars... That were already bent apart. Um, somebody that else happens. had escaped the Dungeons of Aquila, is what I'm saying. It's probably this a monster. Not the first. Because th- these were, like, clearly... Alligator. Man-sized hole had been rope- ripped open. <laughs> I don't know. Alligator with an opposable thumb, perhaps. Uh, anyway, Philippe swims out, and he's and he comes up out of the water, and, you know, he's he's free. And all this time, he is, he is self-narrating. And... Not exactly self-narrating, and it's not exactly the Bueller thing either. What he's doing is he's talking to God. He will do this throughout the movie. He will address God directly. Well, here it's like specifically to God. Later on, no, it's you kind of blur. I, I understand that it's meant to be, but sometimes it's just kind of like he's just chatting with God. Like in the beginning, he is pleading for his help and stuff. It's like very specifically, I'm speaking to God. Right. Later on, he's just speaking, and I guess God's the one listening. Because no one else is. There's, I mean, I don't think you... Maybe he doesn't always address him by name, Lord, but... No, 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 I, I understand. That's who he's supposed to be talking to. There's some great zingers, too. Uh, it's a great comedic device, because he gets in some great lines. Um, but in this one, it's just basically, like, please let that thing floating towards me in the sewer not be what I think it is. Because it looks like some sort of monster crocodile or something coming yeah. to eat him, but it's just some, like, an overturned cart or something that somehow got down there. Um, and Philippe is up and out, and he he manages to get out. And what I liked about his escape in the initial uh, sequence is that he he gets out, and then <laughs> he lies down under the dirt and dust and detritus in the road, and waits for the guards to gallop past him to go looking for him. And then he gets up and walks behind them. They're now well out down the road on their horses and he just saunters along behind them they don't he doesn't have to worry about looking behind him now because he knows all the guards just took off in front of him and he can take his time he doesn't really look in front of himself either he goes he's he's not the best well he's he does a he does a short uh, again another kind of ferris bueller-ish thing where he goes through the yards of some of the neighbors yeah. And he steals their clothes, and it's like when Ferris Bueller is, is doing, hey, dinner's ready, smells delicious. <laughs> Who was that? And it's very much the same thing. He, he steals the clothes uh, of some random family, and the kids are outside playing, and they see him, they go, he's taking daddy's shoes. He says, he says something like, he says, yes, like, I am. That's your ass, I am, or something, and he just keeps on sauntering away. And, and you think, well, great, he's, he's free and clear. And he would be, if not for his decision to proceed immediately to the inn and as Brent said boast to everyone he can find within shouting distance how <laughs> I just escaped the dungeons of I mean Eklund. they already had the drop on him but it just kind of drove home the like whoops 
Yeah, there's... And clearly they were there looking for him. Well, they... There's there's people huddled in robes at one of the tables. No, but I mean, that was the guard. They were there for him. Even sure. if he had not boasted, he, sure. was, he was done. But So they're all huddled, huddled in robes, and Philippe... <laughs> um, you know that? So, so Brent's laundry is done. Uh, if you just let us flip that load real quick, we'll be right back to this. Um, no, but, but Philippe... Uh, he, he puts the, the money down on the counter, and did he steal that money from... Did we see him steal that money? He stole that from one of the guards. Like, he told oh, God he, he wouldn't steal anymore, and then, like, two seconds later, he's like, sorry, man, if I'm weak, you made me yeah, this way. I know I promised, <laughs> but you also know that I lie all the time. Uh, yeah, that's right, he did that. Um, anyway, he, he buys a round for anyone who will join him in a drink to the man who escaped the dungeons of Aquila. And of course, those dudes all sit and huddle together in their mysterious robes, not letting you see their faces. That's all the bishop's guards hanging out, uh, and they quickly show themselves to be such. Um, and they attack Philippe, who does an amazing display of acrobatics, where he is flipping himself up and over the roof of the inn, and avoiding them shoving swords up through the, the lattice work, and he's... Somebody... I thought they had a, you know, for this time period, a lot of action scenes are kind of terrible in movies. But that's also ones in this movie are pretty good. And they were, they were le like legitimate, you know? They weren't like insane over the top. Right, that like never happened. Know, even, the, even the climactic fight scene um, with Rutger Hauer and the, and the Captain Guard guy. Mm -hmm. Like, that was a fight. There, it was a, it was a serious fight, and like at the end, they're both tired, man. Like yeah. as you should be, even swinging swords around for like five minutes. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I like stuff like that where like at the end they're not like. Yeah, it did put me in mind of uh, I don't know if you watched uh, the Netflix uh, Daredevil that that mm -hmm. first Daredevil fight where he is just exhausted. Yeah. At the end of it, it was very much legit exhausting fight. Anyway, um, they all attack him. He flips and jumps and twists out of their way, and you know he's Philippe the Mouse. He can move. Uh, he's not much of a fighter, but he can avoid hits very well. Um, but eventually they corner him, and uh, he's screwed. They're going to get him. But out of nowhere, he is miraculously saved by a flying arrow that comes within an inch of killing the captain of the guard. Um, yeah, I thought it was odd that he... So Rugger Hauer shoots this, this bolt, I guess. Um, sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to be like. Actually, it's a no. Well, it's a crossbow. So, do those shoot bolts or arrows? I don't. It know. depends on the length of the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> now I'm gonna do it. <laughs> I I opened that. Door a crossbow can that. shoot an arrow or it can shoot a bolt, but a bolt is just shorter. And okay, so go ahead. You're good. anyway. He shoots <laughs> some sort of wooden stick thing uh, at the captain's guard and like specifically misses. Like he's warning them. Hey, let him go. Instead of just killing him. And, like, then he proceeds to just fight them all. Like, Well, he, he asks, right? I, I, think, I think the warning shot was out of respect for... Well, you know, it's, it's Rucker Howard. He shows up and you see... And he used to be the captain right, of the so guard. Right, so you see Etienne Navarre for the first time in this movie. Rucker Howard plays him and boy does he look cool. He's this all-black knight. Uh, all-black armor and cloak and... He's got uh, this gorgeous double crossbow thing. I mean, it must weigh like 80 pounds. 
It's but pretty it, serious. But it shoots a couple shots in one before you have to reload it, and it looks really great. It's it's like two crossbows sitting on top of each other, with one trigger, um, and it looks fantastic. Anyway, and he's on a, a, this gigantic uh, black stallion, um, the pranciest yeah, horse, the pranciest horse, horse yeah. Um, and so he shows up and saves um, Philippe from getting sh- from getting killed. And I think he only really wanted to. Uh, I mean, we find out later that he needs Philippe for a specific reason, but I think he he didn't want to. Sort kill. of. He almost thought it was. I mean, he just happened to be there. Uh, I think he had somehow gotten wind. It's possible Philippe had been bragging prior to getting to the inn. We don't know how long he was on. We the felt, I don't know. I felt that was like thirty minutes later. Um, but he he heard that someone escaped the dungeons, and he needed that knowledge of how to. To get back a little bit of a plot Dracula, hole there, possibly. Um, perhaps they bent the bars apart in the corner of that plot zero hole out of ten to allow Rutger Hauer to yeah. just pass straight through. <laughs> um, but, but like you said, he was he was the former captain of the guard. So the captain of the guard now is a man named Marquette, and uh, he was the former captain of the guard. In fact, one of the guards, one of the lower non-named guards, he doesn't get a name, sees him and says. Captain Navarre, and smiles like he just saw Santa Claus. <laughs> like, I've missed you so much, you old son of a gun. You're so much better than Marquette. You have no idea what a dick my current boss is. <laughs> and then, sadly, Marquette just like <laughs> throws that guard aside and says, Captain, Ma- Captain Navarre, get him! He is a traitor! And, and they have to fight, and Navarre makes short work of them. Um, it's, it's, it's a good fight, but it's they don't, they don't have the skills to stand up to. Nepal. He does end up running. There's he, a lot of them. He does, but there's like what is what was there like eight of them and one of him and he still he could do it. Handed their asses to them. <laughs> it was good. Um, also, while Navarre is fighting the guards, Philippe, not even missing a beat, tries to steal Navarre's horse. <laughs> Thank you, my savior. I'm gonna steal this horse uh, and tries to get away, but. Uh, but Navarre quickly catches back up to them, sees that Philippe has taken the horse, gets on the horse, and they gallop off together. And the two of them seem to agree to just stay together without actually discussing it at this point, because the next scene, they've been trotting along, both up riding this horse for some time. Well, I got the impression at the beginning it was just to get distance between them and the guards. And then after that, Rudger Howard or, uh, just basically says, like, Tend to my horse, right, but but it's it's understood that you're 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 my man now. You're yeah. You're gonna work for me, um, and they get to that peasant's home with the with the comical wife. There's there's a peasant wife who she doesn't speak, but she makes these little noises. These <laughs> she's grunting noises that are just bizarre to alert her husband that <laughs> some people have ridden into their farm, and uh, and Navarre negotiates for them to stay in the barn for a little a little coin uh and it's starting to rain so they, they need to get out in and out of the rain um and i loved that like you said he says tend to my horse and philippe is it's like come on girl come on little girl what's the matter with what's her name anyway and record out just like his name is goliath yeah the horse is like offended that he was called a girl yeah and i love the fact that the horse he talks to the horse and gives the horse orders in this movie. The horse does it. It's fine. It's it's like 
he understands complex sentences without any issue at all. I mean, you look at that horse, like, he prances about. That is a very highly trained horse. I believe it follows in those follows yeah, senses. Yeah, the, the prancing this is This is a show distinct. horse. It's yeah. also very weird. It is kind of weird. It and pulls me out of it. Yeah, it's, I don't, again, we talked about it when we were watching it, and I never bothered to look it up, but there's a name for that kind of canter, where you lift one, like, one foot is always up off the, yeah. the floor at any time as they canter. Um, Goliath, this gigantic horse, he does that throughout this film. Every time he's moving, he's doing that high-stepping canter. He, he's more or less, like, tiptoeing around when, like, they're supposed to be, like, running from, you know, certain deaths. So yeah. it's just kind of like, well, okay, I get it. You have... This horse is in, like, 60% of the movie. You needed a very highly trained horse yeah. that an actor could ride, so they got this one. I'm wondering if that's just the way he was brought up to canter in church. Uh, because <laughs> when we get to the end of the movie, there will be horses in church, and they have to behave themselves accordingly. Um, and so uh, they, you know, they they make their camp in the barn, and just before the scene ends, you see Navarre watching the sunset very sadly, and he says, "One day." Okay. Uh, next scene: Philippe gathers firewood, and he's complaining out loud to God a lot about how he's being abused by the man who saved him from certain death into gathering firewood. What a chore. I have to gather firewood just because this guy saved my entire existence? <laughs> the nerve. And and then there's something stalking him in the woods. He hears like a crack in the Yeah, there's something else something. in there. And he does the bit that I remember made you laugh out loud. I really liked it. He's like, Tom, <laughs> get your sword out. Larry! Pierre? Yes, <laughs> like, Pierre, get your crossbow ready. Oh, good. I'm going to go for help. You guys stay here. And so he runs off. I don't know. It was really funny. I kept but... waiting for Pee Wee Herm to say, What do you say? We let him go. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he tries to make himself sound like five men uh, to, to scare off the attackers, but he's attacked anyway, and it's the peasant husband, the one who... But that's not who was stalking him. It was the wolf stalking him. Well, was it? Because there was a wolf, but the wolf does not attack him. I'm reasonably sure the wolf was just sniffing around. You think around he was attacking? You think he was hunting for? for I don't know that the wolf would have hurt Pierre or not. It's very <laughs> Pierre. I'm sorry. Or or Louis or Tom. <laughs> any of them really? <laughs> I don't know that he would have hurt Philippe, but um, this is actually a point that I wrote down in my notes. Is there's a line in the movie they say that they get turned into animals and have no memory of their former selves. Or stupid animals with no memory of their half-life. But that's not true at all. I mean, like, the hawk still definitely is trained and returns to but both I of them. But I think they just were kind of saying, like, they don't... Like, when Michelle Pfeiffer is Lady Hawk, she's not Lady Hawk with Michelle Pfeiffer's brain still firing inside her skull. Right, but they retained She couldn't some scratch of their... out her name with her talons on the wood or anything like that. But she would have been in no danger from the wolf, I think. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I, I got that impression as well. Um, they, they definitely retain at least some loyalty to the other. Yeah. Um, and as to whether or not that extends to Philippe, I suppose that's up for debate. Um, I think more or less... Later on, the hawk gets pretty friendly with Philippe, so why yeah. not the wolf? Um, uh, anyway, 
the peasant attacks trying to, I guess, get the rest of the money that he saw in that pouch. Um, from his just because he was a crazy person, they don't really explain it. Yeah, he could have a whole interesting backstory for all we know. Um, Lady Hawk too, perhaps that peasant guy, (laughs) the prequel peasant hawk. He could have been an agent of the bishop. Deep cover, playing a long game, the bishop. (laughs) You put him there a long time. Ready to come in from the cold. He gets he gets taken out by this black wolf that just attacks from out of nowhere, and Philippe uh, suddenly meets the most glowingly beautiful woman in the world, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer in the eighties. Michelle Pfeiffer in the eighties as Isabeau, and let me tell you, I mean Michelle Pfeiffer. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of people who are going to say Michelle Pfeiffer hasn't always just been a, a wonderfully attractive woman, but um, in this movie, I think she is exceedingly gorgeous she's just she really had it going on and she has this great uh pat benatar haircut like, yeah she's very love is a I battlefield did. yeah i dig the short haircut and it looks fantastic on her um and also uh, I, I think they chose it probably because it's kind of hawkish well okay so when uh etienne and lady hawk finally see each other at the end he's like oh you you changed your hair it's like Wait a second. The last time you saw each other, so I guess just some night she went and got her hair cut? I was thinking she'd been a hawk the whole time. <laughs> Who knows what she's she, been up she to. She could have gotten her hair cut. Never she, mind. She could have had all kinds of adventures. She's <laughs> um, like, night's episode, change, Lady Hawk gets a haircut. <laughs> you changed your hair. And what's with these tattoos? <laughs> um, but yeah, she's she's there. and she, I mean, she just looks fantastic. And... Uh, and Philippe says one of my favorite lines from the movies. He's still talking to God. And the woman, uh, Isabeau, she wanders off. She's got sort of a black cloak wrapped around her. Maybe it's um, it's probably uh, Navarre's cloak that right. she's wrapped around her. And, and she wanders out into the woods. It's night. It's dark. And she wanders to go to go after the wolf, to go find the wolf. And he's not even sure he really saw her. He, it's just very, it all happens really quickly. Yeah, he thinks it's a dream. Could be a ghost. He doesn't know. And he says out loud to God, he said, These are magical, unexplainable matters, Lord, and I beg you not to make me a part of them. <laughs> uh, and so, and in fact, I think he says at one point, uh, am, I, am I dreaming? And she says, You are dreaming. And she's moving away. And it freaks him out even more. Uh, the next scene is morning. It's breakfast time. And... Um, Navarre is talking to Philippe, and Philippe is just trying to convince him, you know, I saw this huge black wolf attacked last night. It could have killed me. Uh, kind of glancing over the fact that it saved his life from the peasant who was trying to kill him. Yeah, he definitely left out the fact that the wolf killed someone, which, you know, Etienne might have cared about. Probably necessary information for the guy you're traveling with. But... Yeah. But anyway, and, and so instead of that, he's especially throws... when the wife is still apparently around, right? But what's the wife going to do? Moan at somebody to tell them that her husband is dead? I don't know. Go <laughs> tell the guard. <laughs> yeah, she might go chirp at the guard. What's that, Crazy Mary? <laughs> um, but and not only that, he throws the wolf under the bus, and it, for all for all he knows, he's like, yes, he was vicious. He, he could have killed me. He was he was attacking. He was frothing at the mouth. And then there was a woman. With eyes like an angel or whatever the heck he said, and uh, and of course Navarre believes it right away, and he's he's jealous of the fact that uh, when 
when Philippe mentions that she told him he was dreaming, Navarre says, she spoke to you? Which is more than he's gotten in a very long time. He hasn't been able to Do we have an idea how long they've been cursed? Well... I mean, I get like so a couple years. So later on, um, when their friend is met, when, they, when we meet up with their friend, their mutual friend, uh, we find out he knew them when he was a young priest. And he is now not so young, so... Oh, I'm, so it could have been like 15 years. I'm guessing maybe like 10 years. Maybe 10 or 15 years. Yeah. I'm guessing maybe 10. Alright. Um, so the next scene, uh, there's a rider coming in at the castle. Marquette reports to the bishop, Navarre has returned. And the bishop gets very weird. And by the way, the bishop is played by John Wood, who, again, I didn't make this connection until recently, but John Wood was Professor Falcon in uh, 1983's War Games. Uh, again, with Matthew Broderick. <laughs> so there's that connection. Um, he's amazing as the bishop in this movie. He's so evil. He's so malicious. He just has a look about him like... He barely moves. Yeah. It's just all eye contact. He and, nails it. Yeah. I think he does a great job. He, he has this sort of slow, skulking presence, and he just kind of turns and gives you this eye, and everyone just withers in front of him. And they're like, uh, yes, my lord, we'll get right on that. <laughs> um, and it's kind of funny because in War Games, John Wood played the other end of the spectrum. His Professor Falcon was this... Um, yeah, he kind of very kindly. Very kindly, yeah. very bemused. Again, didn't do a lot of moving around, but his eye contact was all, I'm, I'm very kind and understanding and I sympathize with you. And here he was just total opposite end of the spectrum. It was great. Um, he, tells, he tells Marquette to kill Navarre, uh, but the hawk must not be harmed. Uh, he, he says that... The, that Navarre is traveling with a hawk um, and, and must not be harmed at any, any cost, something like that. Um, I think he says the new captain of the guard's first duty will be to hang you. <laughs> something like that. He, in no uncertain terms, do not harm the hawk. Yeah. It's time for your mid-year evaluation. And <laughs> it was like the very next scene... <laughs> uh, the next scene is chopping wood. Um, you see Philippe chopping wood with... A big honking broadsword, this gigantic, <laughs> eight-foot-long medieval sword, and I love how Navarre tells him it's something like, "In five hundred years, this sword has never known this is an ancestral blade. This sword has never known defeat until now." <laughs> Chopping wood, and he tells him the history of the sword. This is these jewels mean this and that, and then he points to a a spot on the hilt that has no jewel in it. And at first, Philippe thinks, uh, you know, I didn't take it, if that's what you're thinking. Yeah. And he says, no, no, that's for me to fill. Um, I, have to, I have to complete a task before I can put my jewel in the sword. And he says, well, what do you have to do? And he says, I must kill the Bishop of Aquila. And in his best Ferris Bueller voice, Philippe says, not for the life of my mother, even if I knew who she was. <laughs> and he wants nothing to do with this plan at all. Um, but, you know, he, he wants to leave. And in fact, he tells him, I'm out of here. There's nothing you can say. You know, I understand you can kill me, but better that than to return to Aquila. And right. he turns to leave. And that is the first time we see the flying sword of doom get hurled point first past Philippe's head and embed itself halfway 
up to the hilt into the trunk of a nearby tree right past that can't be good for your sword no but again it's 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 intimately familiar with the chopping of wood so it seems okay um the thing just hangs there with a mighty thunk uh and philippe says i'll uh, i'll go freshen up the horse and i'm on board sir yeah i'm your guy uh, then uh, we move on to Michelle Pfeiffer trying to catch rabbits, and Philippe is tied to a tree. It's nighttime. Michelle Pfeiffer's come out. Rucker Howard has become the wolf and t- disappeared, and he's tied up Philippe because can't have Philippe wandering off. This guy clearly wants to bolt. And again, the the reason he wants Philippe is sort of loosely defined as I know you escaped yeah. Aquila. I need a I need a hidden way into Aquila. You're the only one who has one. You're going to get me in. Um, they don't really go into much more detail than that. but Well, it's a pretty loose reason, so it's better they don't go Better we don't examine it. And, and he knows that Philippe wants to bolt, so he ties him up. And she sees him there. Obviously, she knows Navarre has tied him there for <laughs> very justifiable reasons. She doesn't know the specifics, but she must trust Navarre at this point and know that he did it for a reason. And Philippe just sweet-talks his way out of it. Says, please, miss, come on. Come on, let me, come on. And she's like, all right. Unties him. And he leaves. Turns her head for a second because you hear the, the wolf howling, and she's, she turns back, and he's gone. I really liked that part because a lot of times there's not that continuity of character in movies. He would just stick around, but like, no, he actually does not want to be here. And he has told everyone this multiple yeah. times. It's not, he's not trying to be a hero. He wants nothing to do with it. He's begged God not to be a part of this story. Right. Um, God has other plans for the boy, uh, unfortunately. And she says, <laughs> this time she says to herself, uh, he's going to kill me, meaning Navarre. And uh, we know that Navarre is not going to kill her because he loves her. Oh. Aww. Uh, Philippe's promptly recaptured, however, in the next scene, <laughs> because being recaptured is what Philippe does best. Aside from lying, he gets recaptured excellently throughout this entire film. Do we even see it, or are we just oh, yeah. him being captured? He's he's promptly recaptured by the bishop's guards. It happens really quick. Um, he tries to lie to them about where Navarre might be, because by now they yeah, know he tries to protect him. He he does he does go that far. He won't fight for him, but he will try to misdirect the people who are after him. Yeah. Uh, but they see right through it. They, they're like, yeah, if you tell me he went south, then I know he went north. <laughs> to, which, to which Philippe has another good lie to God. It's like, how am I supposed to learn anything, Lord? If, <laughs> <laughs> if you keep confusing me like this, I try to do the right thing. <laughs> um, but that's okay, because... Um, when, when when they close in on Navarre, um, Philippe manages to bite one of his, bite the guard who's holding him, causing the guard to cry out, which is all the heads up signal in advance that Navarre needs to right. avoid getting surprise ambushed. He turns and fights, and there's a big battle. Swords, action. The audio won't do it justice. However. Unfortunately, Lady Hawk is hit by an errant arrow. Like, and it is completely errant. So the hawk is 100, 200 feet up in the air, circling around. And uh, Philippe, like, throws a rock or something at one of the crossbow guards 
to like stop him from shooting Etienne, and like so the guy shoots just it's randomly. Up. Yeah, and, and like it really made me think like was that a divine intervention thing? Because like it's really hard to hit a moving target at in all, the air. Yeah, much less one you weren't aiming at. The other and like thing- if you think about it, it is what led to. All the rest of the story? Well, the rest of the story, but specifically their redemption. Yes. But the other thing I was thinking of when this battle was happening, even before Lady Hawk gets hit, is she's a hawk. A hawk hawks are vicious. Yeah. They can do damage. She should be in people's faces, ripping up eyes and slashing. She's not into that. (laughs) She's a lady. (laughs) Whoa. Uh, Yeah. She she just decides to head for the high ground and circle above kind of uselessly during this battle. And you know what? I was glad when she got shot because it served her right. That's right. I'll go there. Useless hawk. Um, and so she falls down and then you see just Navarre loses his mind, of course, because... She's a draft dodger. <laughs> She's a draft dodger. Um, and, and he loses his mind. He immediately runs... The, the battle's over. Everyone's defeated. He runs for the hawk. Wraps her up in like swaddling clothing, yeah, like a little, little baby. baby hawk. He wraps her like a little baby with an arrow sticking up, and he sit, and he picks her up and he hands the hawk to Philippe and he says, "Take her to Imperius the monk," and he tells him where to go, someplace close by. And I remember at the time you and I were wondering why wouldn't he just take the bird to Imperius the monk himself? Why is he handing this off? He hands him to Philippe, and then he puts Philippe on Goliath, the horse, smacks Goliath on the rump, and sends him running in the general direction. I, I think he had time to make it. <laughs> well, that's what occurred to us later, is that maybe it was too close to transformation time, and he didn't know if he would make it. Because he I feel does... like he could get closer and then be like, you know what, I'm not going to make it. But, you yeah, see, that's, but that's another thing that leads me to think that maybe he doesn't have as much control over who the wolf hurts as we would like to think, because he seems concerned about being too close to even Philippe when he changes. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, it, it, I think I think the movie itself hadn't decided whether or not the wolf had control or not. I think it did when it needed it, and story-wise didn't when it didn't need it. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, it could just be that, I mean, they do make it clear they have no memory of what happens when they're in their animal forms. Yeah. So, even if he is... Uh, loyal, how would he know? Sure. She can't tell him. I mean, I guess she could just like write it in the dirt, be like, hey, as a wolf, you're cool. And then he wakes up the next morning, he's like, oh. Yeah, I don't know why they don't write letters to each other. You say uh, loyal, it also made me wonder, can they... Alright. <laughs> so, so, he does make a, a statement later on, wolves and hawks mate for life. To each other. Um, not to each other, no. And and he says this to to Philippe to basically drive home the the curse didn't even leave us that even you know we're not even together as animals, right? Um, but the other thing, no, I thought he meant that he can't even as a wolf go bang some other wolf. That exactly where I was going. So <laughs> so the wolf can't go find a mate when it's in wolf form, right? Because in the wolf's limited animal intelligence, it knows that it has a mate of some form somewhere. Right, it is already betrothed. And same thing with the hawk. The hawk can't go off and make hawk babies. 
uh, or you know, with with another hawk because of the same deal. So it could be so awkward. I was wondering though if they did. Let's let's suppose, let's suppose Navarre goes off and mates with a wolf in his wolf form. Would those offspring be wolves Werewolves. or mm, werehawks? <laughs> Lady Hawk Two, werehawk. Oh. Oh, I can imagine like little hawk babies with like you know, hook you know the the, the beaks instead of beaks with just human just, faces. You're like, oh, something got a very gross, very Jurassic. It's like how the duck pops out. <laughs> I was just imagining the the, the little uh, Velociraptor uh, breaking out of its egg in Jurassic Park, <laughs> but more like you know human hawk baby there. There you um, go. So anyway, he 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 tells Philippe to take the bird to Imperius the monk and he prays he sits down and he prays to the sky please please um Philippe finds the ruins of a castle or some sort of outpost maybe not a castle but uh and and there he meets Imperius uh played by Leo McKean 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 McKern Leo McKern <laughs> if I can read my own handwriting um and there's a there's a humorous interaction between where he calls up to the calls up to the tower and he says hello up there hello and imperious hello what do you want he's like i there's a hawk that's been shot here and imperious immediately says oh good shot bring her in we'll dine together <laughs> you can't eat this hawk why not oh god is it lent again already <laughs> And then he explains, no, this hawk belongs to Etienne Navarre. And suddenly there's you know, dead silence. And he says, bring her up, bring her up. And um... so one thing about this whole section of the movie is, you know, this is when Matthew Broderick finds out about the, the whole details lady of the curse. Yeah. I don't understand why it was a secret. How so, like, a secret from... Like, why didn't uh, Etienne just tell Philippe? Oh, I... I think it was more a matter of I'm not going to we're not going to be buddies and I'm not going to give you the intimate details of my life. I need you for a specific purpose and then I'm going to discard you. Yeah, but like it kind of got in the way where he's like, I really need you to save this hawk. And he's like, okay, I guess. Like, I think he would have, I mean, at that point you're right and I think if there had been time, he would have been like, I need you to save this hawk. But it's not and just... here's why. Flashback. It's not just Aquila, him, the, ten years uh, ago. Uh, Imperius is also very weird about it. Like, he doesn't want to tell him. He even, like, makes him sit outside and locks the door. Well, at that point, Imperius does not know at all what Matthew Broderick's character may have seen or not seen at this point. So do you tell a complete stranger that hawk that you're holding turns into a woman at night... It's fantastic, and let me tell you all about why it's happening. Because I don't know. I I think I don't know. It, it's 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 just not like it's not a weakness, really. It's not like you're revealing. Oh, but you, he might think you're crazy. Well, I mean, it would only find out he's going to find out. Yeah. But then again, but he made him leave, so he couldn't find out. Is my point. The other thing, though, to remember is this all happened. The curse happens because he broke their confidence once. Okay. Yeah. No, you're so right. So maybe he's not going to open his mouth about anything they do you're until right. they give him leave to do so. I mean, I feel there, there's also the important part that, to a certain extent, Matthew Broderick is the audience, and this is when mm -hmm. we are finding out for oh, yeah. sure. I mean, like we we knew. Yeah. But like, 
this is when it is all revealed. Well, and um, almost. First, you have to do the actual surgery. And the surgery is done pretty cool. Because you have to... So Imperius has to wait a couple of minutes for the hawk to... For the sun to go down and the hawk to become Isabeau. Because he doesn't want to yank that arrow out of the hawk. Yeah, comparatively, it's like ten times the size. Right. Yeah, it's like she got stabbed with a, the mast of a ship. Right. Instead <laughs> of a pencil. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, the hawk is practically impaled, whereas she's just stabbed. Um, and then the actual, you know, he gives her a little whiskey, says, bite down on this. And she's holding his hand, and he's got his hand over the arrow, and he's, are you ready? And she nods. And they're flashing back and forth um, between... It shifts between uh, Isabeau suffering as, as the arrow is being pulled out and the bishop back in his bedchambers in Aquila having a horrible nightmare of presumably being tortured by visions of Isabeau. Yeah. And you get the impression he's just been so um, obsessed with her this entire time that he probably hasn't slept a night and the entire time the curse has been going on. He's just been thinking and dreaming of, of nothing but having her or not having her right. the entire time. Some it's been driving yeah. him mad. I mean, he was already mad, but driving him mad-er. And it's a good back and forth. I just, I, I appreciate it. Um, and as as the arrow is finally yanked out of Isabeau, um, the, the bishop wakes up from his nightmare because someone has come to his door and it's one of the guards who tells him uh, Cesar has arrived. And you... Spotted Cesar in in a second as soon as you saw him. I never even made the connection. But who is Cesar? It's Alfred Molina. Alfred the freaking Molina. Doctor Octopus himself. That is right. And he crops up in bit parts all over the nineteen eighties. Uh, most notably in that Raiders of the Lost Ark opening sequence. Yeah, that was him. That was him. Um, but yeah, here's Alfred Molina, and he is looking scarred. <laughs> he has seen some things. It's just like all kinds of damage to his to the one side of his face, um, but that makes sense when you find out that uh, Alfred Molina's character Cesar is a wolf trapper. That's what he does. He goes out and he hunts down wolves, specifically black wolves, because he just wants to kill Etienne. Well, what they even say is, um, since the time of the Black Plague, wolves have been a problem. They've, their population has gotten out of well something like the rats went crazy and then the wolves yeah. went crazy and... so then people like him are necessary to try and keep the population under control and yeah. I'm not trying to justify the bishop's uh, technique here or anything but uh, apparently it's not uncommon for there to be lots of wolf trappers at this time in history by the way where would you say all of this is taking place this entire countryside we're walking around in? it feels vaguely European uh I mean, if they weren't speaking English, I would have said probably Germany. I looked, um, I did my thorough podcaster research. I had, so I had the uh, Illuminati's team do their research. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, we, a we, research We team. called the boys in the lab and we asked them to, uh, <laughs> to contact the movie studios and see if they could get anybody who was working on the film back then. Uh, what they came up with was they looked on IMDb. And uh, in the trivia section of IMDb, they mentioned that this is taking place in uh, late 1500s, early 1600s Italy. Okay. So that's where we are. Um, and let me tell you, gorgeous scenery throughout this 
film. I mean, it's it's beautiful countryside, and it ranges very well too. There's, you know, what dark like, forest. There's frozen lakes, and they have really good like castles and stuff. Like for being 1985, yeah. like it was beautiful. Uh, I mean, like there's either like a perfectly good functioning couple castles in yeah. Italy, or they built a castle. Yeah, it was gorgeous stuff. But anyway, um, uh, apparently this this was. This was all fine. This was all historically accurate, according to IMDb, <laughs> with, with more the, or less the wolf population at that time after the Black Plague. Blah blah blah. Okay, that's awesome. Um, so, in the next scene, it's it's one of my favorite scenes of the movie. It's very uh, atmospheric, and it's it's imperious and Philippe around a campfire. Isabeau is recovering in a room by herself, resting now that the arrow has been removed, and imperious. You know, Matthew Broderick has seen what he's seen, and he, he requires some explanation, and Imperius basically starts to tell him the story. Uh, once he starts talking, it's easy to keep him talking, because uh, Matthew Broderick keeps refilling his glass. Yeah. He even, he even stops talking at one point, and uh, Matthew Broderick's like, oh, right, 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 right. It's and, like, and? Like, <laughs> poor. Like, it's not like Imperius wasn't aware of no. what was keeping him talking. And this is Imperius's great weakness, is the drink. This is what... Imperius's drinking is what caused all of this to happen in the first place and that's what we find out we find out that years ago um there was an orphaned noble woman who uh lived in aquila uh isabeau who caught the eye of the bishop uh, and he was obsessed with her wanted her in the worst way and uh she just was not interested she sensed he was not quite the man of god that he was supposed to be, and they sensed that he was, in fact, creepy. Um, so, my Catholicism is a little rusty. Can bishops take wives? Uh, well, I know that um, they may not creep. That is that is a big commandment. Well, right, but like, but it could she even have accepted his advances and it be okay? I, I guess is my point. Not just that she detected he was a little off. I but. honestly don't know. I know that it depends on you know what branch you are for sect. for priest to marry. There's lots that do. There's lots that don't. But bishops, I don't know. I imagine it's the same. I imagine you could be a kind of bishop that could marry. I don't know. Okay. Uh, again, that's a question for the boys in the uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll the Illuminati's research the department. The yeah, we'll let you know on episode three yeah. what the boys find. We'll get them to it. Um, top-notch crew. They'll they'll get to the bottom of this. Um, <laughs> or so, they might not. <laughs> or not, you know, as it turns out. But uh, Isabeau was in fact in love with the dashing, handsome captain of the guard, uh, Etienne Navarre. And Imperius tells Philippe that the lovers were betrayed because they shared the same confessor. And in a moment of drunken stupidity... He broke his vow and spilled their secret love to the bishop when he was confessing to the bishop. Yeah. Drunkenly. And the bishop lost his mind. And that caused the bishop to call upon the powers of darkness. And he made a deal with Beelzebub that by night, and he said, and you have seen it working, Philippe, by night, uh, Navarre is the lonesome black wolf, and by day, Isabeau is a hawk, and 
they have only that split it, second between sunrise and sunset when they can almost touch in their human forms as they're shifting, but not. And then Matthew Broderick says, what you said was automatically had to have been the poster tagline. Always together, eternally apart. It's beautiful. I mean, it has, <laughs> but I looked. I actually did look later on. I went home and I looked up to see if I could find any posters with the always together, eternally apart. And they didn't use it. It's in the description for the movie. Like, we bought this on Amazon Video. It's in the description for the movie. It should have been on every poster and every movie box. It's perfect. Always together, eternally apart. In fact, if I get myself, if I am fortunate enough to get a Ladyhawk t-shirt at some point, that needs to be printed at the bottom of that t-shirt. Because it's marketing gold. <laughs> it's not the worst. Uh, our next scene has... Alfred Molina's Cesar, and he's brought the bishop a ton of wolf pelts, like on a sled. Uh, but none of them are Navarre, the bishop can tell at a glance, but barely even poking at them. Which is funny because, uh, Isabeau can't. I know, right? <laughs> like, twice she sees she wolf. wolf pelts and is like, no! Ah! <laughs> they're like, oh, wait, 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 no, no, it's okay. <laughs> but the bishop... Looks, he glances and pokes with his staff at a. It's like staff. thirty pelts. He's just like, like nope, that's he's not, not there. Nope, that one doesn't like look anything like him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he moves along, and he tells Cesar to look for uh, a woman traveling with a black wolf, and that's how you'll know that that's the correct black wolf. The woman, and he says her name in this very affected way. Isabon. <laughs> in fact, if we can isolate that soundbite. <laughs> That's a good, <laughs> yeah. that needs to be in there. I'll find that. It's a bull. Um, and it, fact, I think it's the first time you hear her name? Maybe? No, because... It, I guess you heard it in the story. Okay. Yeah. Um, he says, find her and you will find the wolf. The wolf who... Beat. Loves her. <laughs> and Alfred Molina does not seem at all shocked that there's a wolf who loves Isabeau. He's like, like hey, right, see a lot of things in my scarred years. I get the impression that Upper Molina would do whatever for for the right <laughs> amount of coin. I'm going to a temple with this archaeologist later. It's going to be pretty sweet. Um, uh, next scene, Isabeau lays recovering from her uh, her operation. Philippe totally lies to her to give her hope to keep going. I really liked this because he's... Uh, you know, over the next few iterations of Night and Day... He actually starts lying to them both, like trying to make them Beautiful. both happy. Oh yeah, and like to, to the point where eventually she's like, "All right, what did he actually say?" Yeah. <laughs> you know, like. But I really like that he once he heard the story, he started to get invested, and like you see his change from, "I don't want to be here. I run away." It's like, ah, "You asked me this favor to take this hawk. I guess I'll do that." And like, but now he understands what's happening. He's like. Oh man, I really like these guys, and like he just—he, I don't know—he likes them. He's rooting not for only them. does he want to be in the story now, he wants to write whole scenes of dialogue that <laughs> did not happen, and like not even close. And he does it very well. I mean, it's 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 lovely prose that he comes yeah. up with, and he like basically tells her. And it's not like he took what uh, Etienne said and no. made it more flowery, and he doesn't even do the opposite for for her. He just. <laughs> He's like, Flat out makes he's like up. you must save this hawk, he said, for she is my life. <laughs> she is all that I have to keep, and just goes on and on. And it's, she's like, he said that? He's like, she, and, and then later, when he does the same thing to Navarre, Navarre even tells him, I warn you, 
I will know if the words are hers. And he BSs a completely <laughs> same thing. Know. And Navarre's like, oh, that's her, all right. <laughs> that's my girl. <laughs> um, well, no, I, I really liked you being able to see uh, Philippe's uh, change. Like him getting invested in what's happening here. And yeah. like not just hanging around because the plot demanded him to hang around. He actually started to care about something. It happened in the previous scene when he got the full details of the curse at the campfire with Imperius. That's when yeah. he bought all in. And from then on, he's all in for the rest of the movie. Um, it, and, and lying, I, I wrote a note, lying is Philippe's superpower. That's, <laughs> really one of them it. can turn into a wolf, one of them can turn into a hawk, one of them can lie through his teeth and make things happen that way. And that's his superpower. And the next scene, Navarre catches up well, Navarre hasn't caught up yet, um, but but Imperius is talking to to Philippe, and he tells Philippe that it's been his curse since that time to live with the guilt of what he's done, um, and he's been drinking a lot more. Obviously, he's no longer part of the clergy; he's living yeah. by himself as a hermit. Um, but at last, what was it like a few days ago? Maybe the Lord grants him a vision of how the curse can be lifted. Because, according to Imperius, the Lord has forgiven me. Well, and up until now, so, like, different people have said that the Lord acted in their favor. Like, when when Etienne hears that someone broke out of the prison, for some reason he takes that as a sign of God that it is time to return, which theoretically it was. I make the case that the hawk getting shot was an act of God because it's really fucking hard to shoot a hawk. But God straight up goes into this guy's dream and is like, here's what you gotta do. But that's fine because, after all, the bishop made straight up a deal with the devil to start this whole thing. I know. I just, I would have, I would have rather that it was more, um, (laughs) yeah, a more subtle influence where it's, you know, I like, I like when they make you think like, was that divine intervention or not? And then, like, eventually you find that, like, the way all those things worked out, it actually, it seems like it because everything worked out, yeah. you know? Like, that kind of stuff. I think that's a little bit clearer or tighter storytelling than just, like... Well... Oh, no, he... Okay, so you guys you guys gotta get in the clips and then you gotta go to the, the church and you both gotta stand in front of the... Like, it was very, like, odd requirements, too. Like, I feel like you there could have been the some other reason... Turn yourself around, stand to on your both left be foot. there. Because, like, the, the requirements seem to be for the bishop to look on both of you at once. In your human form. If but you like, can both be human in front of the bishop at the same time, that's it. Curse is lifted. But it was unclear, like, why that matters. Well, because they can never be human at the same time. Except they will have that opportunity in two days' time, in Aquila. There will be, as Imperius tells us, a day without a night, and a night... Without a day. I think they knew what eclipses were. Uh, I don't know that they did. I don't know. Uh, You know. They're not that rare. I I don't know. Well, it seemed to be nonsense to everyone who heard it except (laughs) Imperius. Imperius was the only one when it was like, don't you? Because Imperius didn't use the word eclipse. If he had, if he said. No one used the word eclipse. If he said there's going to be an eclipse in two days' time, then that would have gotten all the gears turning into Var's head. No, I got the impression that, I got the impression that. God said to him those words, and he didn't realize that's what it meant, but he right. had such faith that he was just like, it's going to work right. out. Right, but my point being that if, if he told Navarre, Eclipse in two days' time, 
Navarro would have been like, an eclipse? Wow, that's going to have all kinds of interesting... Yeah, maybe that would work. That could work, but no. Because instead we, we give you this flowery day without a night, night without a day. What? I don't know, to me, in an otherwise like really tight script, I feel like the whole... God coming to this guy in a dream and telling him exactly what needs to happen was like the weakest part. Okay, fair enough. Uh, well, subtleties aside, that's what happens. <laughs> God, God whispers in Furious's ear and tells him this is what needs to happen. And he says, he tells Philippe he needs to return to Aquila for this to, to work. And Philippe tells him, well, don't worry about that. He's on his way back to Aquila. Yeah. In fact, he's going there tomorrow to kill the bishop. And... You know, the Imperius is like, no, if he kills the bishop, the curse can never be undone. Right, because he can't see it. Right. Um, the bishop's guard find and attack Imperius's keep. And this is uh, a great sequence because every time you cross this little bridge in Imperius's uh, fortress, uh, he tells Philippe, walk on the left side, walk on the left, on the left, on the left. Because this place is falling apart. Um, he the, the guards show up and they say, where is the girl and he says oh, right this way my son and go ahead and he sends him out along the bridge <laughs> and the guy puts his the guard puts his foot down and plummets through the, the rotten wood and just falls into the water below and the furious leans into the hole shouts walk on the left side <laughs> uh and then unfortunately imperius is rendered unconscious by one of the other guards with the lamest love tap of a hit I ever saw. It but the like, note I wrote was Shatner Chop. Yes. <laughs> it's very much a Shatner Chop. It, it wasn't even, I don't know, it was just like... He At barely, least you get the impression that Shatner means it when he yeah. does it, but it was like a like a very non-committal Shatner Chop. This was chop. almost like if you were going to wake someone who was sleeping, <laughs> you might grab them by the shoulder this roughly and shake them a little bit. That's what he did. And then he suddenly, like. He accidentally Vulcaned him yeah. down. Yeah, that nerve is a tender cluster right there. Um, they chase Isabeau and Philippe. The guards chase Isabeau and Philippe all over uh, and up to the tower roof. And they're, they're trapped. There's nothing they can do. They're standing on top of the trap door that opens onto the roof trying to keep the guards out. But the guards are many and stronger. And they force open the trap door, force their way into the roof. Philippe and... Isabeau back to the corner, and Isabeau falls over and is dangling by her fingers. Um, but it is just in time as her fingers finally let go for the sun to rise. And as the sun rises, she falls off and turns into a hawk. And it's a pretty impressive sequence, I thought, for 1980s. Sure. A uh, transformation sequence. As she falls and the sunlight hits her as she's falling, it changes her into a hawk. And they do another cool thing, which I really enjoyed. Well, two. One, the flapping, flowing robes that she's wearing. She's wrapped in, like, sheets and stuff. Those flapping sheets and robes become the flapping of the hawk wings. Mm -hmm. And her screaming, Michelle Pfeiffer's screaming as she the... falls, turns into the hawk screech. Yeah. And the transition is well done. Um, until finally it's a, it's a hawk screeching and flying away instead of a, instead of a girl screaming and falling to her death. Um, the guard leans over the edge... <laughs> and looks at Philippe, who is sitting on a gargoyle, trying not to be noticed. <laughs> and the guard says, where's the girl? And Philippe says, she flew away. <laughs> he says, I'll kill you, boy. And he says, I'll tell the truth, she flew away. And at that moment, an arrow flies up and kills the guard, and Navarre has finally caught up with them on his horse, and he's arrived at the castle. Philippe waves down to Navarre, who saved his life, and he says, 
Always pays to tell the truth, Lord. <laughs> I know that now. Thank you. <laughs> um, Navar thanks Imperius, who tries to tell Navar how to break the curse, but Navar won't listen. He, he really wants his, his kill shot. He's dead set on murdering the bishop as soon as possible. And uh, he and Philippe press on to Aquila, and Philippe just sort of whispers to Imperius, just don't worry about it, follow us. Just get 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 in your horse and get to us as quick as can. So Imperius is falling behind uh, in a donkey cart with his donkey Abraham. Uh, <laughs> and you see him, they flash back to him from time to time. You see, you see uh, Navarre and Philippe riding nobly forward on Goliath, and they have their Lady Hawk theme music playing as they're as they're trudging through the distance, and then they flash back to Imperius in his donkey cart, who's just grumbling at the poor donkey Abraham, saying, get on with it, Abraham. <laughs> Go on. Um, and the storm comes, and uh, Philippe steals some clothes for Isabeau. It's night now. Steals some clothes for Isabeau, lays them out, and Isabeau puts on a dress for the first time in who knows how long because it doesn't look like Navarre was carrying clothes for her. She was it always needing clothes. It would be easy to do so, like just so easy. lay them out for her before Have you go to sleep. a travel sack on that enormous horse of yours. Right? He's got clothes for himself. <laughs> but he's not the only one traveling and it never occurs to him to put you know clothes what? on her. I'll have my super attractive uh wife? I don't know if they're married, but they're not married, but his love betrothed, definitely. Just wander around naked in in medieval times. Like that's super dumb. She man. can find some hay to hide behind. It's fine. <laughs> She'll be good. All night long. She'd have gotten her like ponchos and stuff. Like really toned down <laughs> yeah. that eighties that Michelle Pfeiffer. Some vertical stripes or something, something yeah. that'll make her seem a little less beautiful. <laughs> Jeez, like here's some mud to put on your face. Just do something. <laughs> um but, but so Philippe does a kind thing, a thoughtful thing, and gives her a dress. Now, he stole the dress, of course, from uh, the owners of the, the bar that they've... They're, they're out at a, a barn next to a bar. Um, but she, she puts on a dress and she thanks him very honestly for the first dress she's probably worn in ten years. Uh, that kind of fits, too. Um, and she looks great, of course. And uh, there's music playing from the barn, and, and Philippe uh, invites her to dance with him in the bar, uh, barn. And they, they dance a little bit to some authentic 1500s-ish Italian music. Sure. Um, my, the researchers are saying, are nodding their heads. They say that yes. Yeah, the lab boys funny. give it the green light. So, uh, and it's a very nice little moment. And then what uh, Philippe says is, I think we should go. <laughs> Philippe is kind of pressing his luck with the girl. He, you never get the impression that he, he really wants to put the moves on Isabel, but he's a little in love with her. He's just kind yeah. of awestruck by her. And uh, he says he just wants to do nice things for her while she's with him. So he's like, let's go into the bar and I'll, you can have a drink and you'd be like a person for a night, you know? Yeah. You got a dress on. You can have a drink. You can sit and listen to music by a fire. Uh, it's raining outside, so they put cloak on over them so they won't get wet. And they head out into the rain and right outside the barn, there is Cesar. Who hears Philippe call her Isabel. Um, and Isabel steals Goliath and rides off, uh, presumably to save Navarre from this hunter she just saw who was carrying disgusting bloody wolf pelts. And she's afraid for the wolf now. 
Right. Um, Cesar's trap in the woods goes off and does nab a wolf, but it's not Navarre. Um, well, it's funny. She actually gets... I'm a little fuzzy in the order of events, but she goes looking for the hunter with a knife. Like, she is well, there I to kill I think she him. was looking for the wolf to make sure he wasn't trapped. The hunter pursues her, uh, Cesar pursues her, and catches up with her. And she turns on him. She does have a knife. It's her only but he'd weapon. he'd already been there setting up traps. He was, he was setting up traps all throughout those woods around the barn. And when he saw her take off, he followed her. He, he went after her. Anyway... I think she went looking for blood. Well, it's possible. She is a hawk. Yep. They're bloodthirsty creatures. And um, she kicks Cesar over into his own trap, and he falls face first into a wolf trap. <laughs> yeah, he gets it pretty bad. Which, I mean, you, we've, we've seen how scarred he is on the face already. Yeah. Uh, this one, don't worry, it's not going to scar. Uh, you're dead. <laughs> it crushes his skull. And no more Cesar. Um, in the next scene... Navarre has made Philippe breakfast. Uh, a kindness that is being at last shown Pop to eggs. Philippe. Oh, God. <laughs> I hope not. Not hawk eggs. Um, and, and so Philippe is grateful eating the breakfast. And, and as Navarre stands up and stretches his arm, Lady Hawk comes flying, presumably to go land on her master's arm, which she's been doing many times throughout this whole film, to land on Rutger Hauer's outstretched arms. She bypasses Rutger Hauer altogether and lands on Philippe's arm instead as, as he's yawning. <laughs> and Rutger Hauer turns and looks and says, What uh, What happened with you two last night? Uh, nothing. Nothing. And it's comedy ensues. It's just a lovely scene. Um, and then the aforementioned BS masterpiece where he lays it on thick for Navarre, what, yeah. what Isabeau's words were, you know. Tell him I still have hope that you will deliver us to our salvation and blah, 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 blah. And, so <laughs> and that's where we get, uh, at the end of that scene is also where we get the, did you know hawks and wolves made for Yeah. Them. Come on, man. Um, the next evening, there's a lot of day, night, day, night shifting because that's that's how this works with the, the two characters yeah, if they want to have another scene with another person, they gotta kill a day to. So I didn't actually do the math, but how many days would you say this event takes place over this the story of this the film? entire movie? Yeah, what, like ten. a week, maybe, maybe? Yeah, seven to ten, something like yeah, that. something like that. Um, and Philippe tells Isabel, Isabel, this may be our last evening together. Um, and when she asks him why, he says. You know, he's taking us back into Aquila. He's going to kill the bishop. Um, once I get him in, that's pretty much all he needs me for, is to get him into Aquila. Um, but listen, we have a plan. And she says, you and Navarre? And he says, no. <laughs> and out from the woods steps Imperius, who has caught up with them. And Imperius and, even though we don't see it, Imperius and um, Philippe, explain their plan, their vision from God to Isabeau, who, while obviously still having some reservations, decides to help them and back their play on keeping Navarre here in the woods another night so that he can't get to Aquila until the following day. I'm a little unclear what their plan was. So the plan is, we're going to dig a pit we're going to cover it with a loose 
grating of sticks and leaves so it doesn't look like it's a pit. It just looks like more of the ground. We're going to lead the wolf to run across that pit, fall into it, and he'll be stuck there all night and won't be able to go anywhere. When he wakes up, we'll have him tied up as Navarre and we'll hold him there for the full day. Okay. He'll be mad and probably want to kill us, but a day will have passed. He'll still get to go fight the bishop, but at least we'll be on the right timeline to right. to enact the curse or to destroy the curse. Right. But if he goes immediately, there's no stopping the curse. We have to we have to delay him a day. Um, so Isabeau decides to help them with this. She knows that the wolf will come to her. That's what's been happening throughout the film. So she's going to be the the bait to lead the wolf into the pit. You with me? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I got it from here on out. I just... So... It was such a weird... Yeah. So they, they go to uh, to do this, um, to lead the... They dig the pit. <laughs> there's, a, there's a comedic bit between uh, Philippe and, and Imperius as they're digging it because Imperius can't get himself back out of the pit. And he's having, he's having Philippe boost him up. And Philippe says something like, when you kneel down for confession, how do you get back up again? <laughs> Um, but they get out of the pit and night falls, the wolf comes, and there's a big frozen lake that they're nearby. They're like right on the shore of this big frozen lake. Gorgeous. And while the wolf sees Isabeau and starts coming towards her, he's crossing the snowy ice-covered lake. And before he can even get to her and the pit, uh, he hits a patch of ice that is not very solid and falls in. Now he's going to die. Uh, he's going to freeze to death and die, and they all freak out. They're like, we have to get him, and they, they run out across the ice, belly down on the ice, because that's what you do. You spread your weight evenly to right, right, right. disturb it as little as possible. And they they manage to get him out, but not before... Uh, basically, Philippe goes into the hole in the water after the wolf and pulls the wolf out. The wolf mauls him pretty terribly all over his chest. Um, because the wolf's panicked and blind crazy. Yeah. They get him out, and they get Philippe out, but he's hurt. You know, he's scratched up a lot. Um, and there's, then there's the next morning we see the transformation sequence, and that's a great sequence where you see Rucker Howard changing. He's in the pit, by the way. They put him into the pit. <laughs> he's changing. She's changing next to him on, on top of the ground by the pit, and they reach for each other. They almost touch just at that moment, split second, but they don't. She flies away, and he screams and howls with rage. And I remember at that point, I made a note saying, Rutger, how? <laughs> Brent then stood up and showed me where his front door could be found. <laughs> um, so bad. But then the next scene, when Navarre is talking to Imperius and Philippe, he's basically saying, you know, I won't be stopped. You're not going to stop me. They didn't tie him up. You're not going to stop me. I'm going to kill the bishop. And he knocks Philippe to the ground, and Philippe's shirt falls open. And there, Navarre sees all the terrible scratches all over him. He says, what happened there? Where did this come from? And Imperius says, that happened last night when he was saving your life. Yeah. That convinces Navarre on... He basically says, forgive me. And he says, I'll show you two idiots how to trap a wolf. Um, so presumably he does that. Because the next scene is 
we're getting down to the wire now. It's it's attack on Aquila. Um, we're now presumably on the right day where this can all work. They're sneaking into Aquila on the back of a wagon. They've got a caged wolf in their wagon, Imperius and Philippe up front. Um, they sneak past the guards, and I remember... The guard wants to inspect what's in their wagon, so he uncovers it, and there's the wolf barking and barking at him. He takes out his sword, and he says, Oh, I've never had the pleasure of killing a wolf before. And now, Imperius had said, This is a, a surprise gift for the bishop from the people of my parish, this wolf. But he says something about, like, the pelt. Well, he says, I've, I've, This is a surprise gift. Yeah, wolf pelt, I guess. But this is a surprise gift for, my, for the bishop from the people of my parish. The guard says, I've never had the pleasure of killing a wolf before. And he draws his sword like he's going to stab it right through the bars of the cage. And Imperius says, how strange. That's exactly what yeah. the bishop said. On the phone when they were talking about I it? know, right? <laughs> how did this communication occur? Well, the bishop was talking to the devil. And then he went over <laughs> and like, really, he played telephone. The telephone, yeah. I don't know how they phoned ahead for this information, but... Maybe he was on a previous visit. But this was a stupid guard who gave him pause. And the guard was like, all right, move along. And so they get through the castle gates. Um, meanwhile, while they're doing that, Philippe has left and gone down through his basically reverse escape. Gone back into the water, up through the secret pride apart bars that are under the water up through the secret entrance that brings him into the sewer and now he's up underneath the grating in the church again this was his original plan was to get out through the church um what he needs to do is to come up through the grating in that floor and open the closed church doors which and why we... is the church locked during the, the service? because the bishop is hearing the confession of the nobles and so that's I guess guess worthy of locking a the high doors. society event and you close off the doors so the doors are barred from the inside if he can come up through the grates and unbar them then there's free access to the bishop so he's he's underneath the grating and of course there's people in the church again and they're standing there and he's trying to get them to move so he takes out his knife and starts poking at their feet through their sandals <laughs> with his knife one of the guys <laughs> It's like, what's going on? And he whispers to another guy, he says, rats. <laughs> and I remember thinking, not rats. Mouse. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so he, he gets the guy to move, so he's free to come out through the grate. Um, meanwhile, you, you go back to uh, uh, Imperius talking to Navarre. Navarre hands Imperius um, what I think is Isabeau's knife. Who, Imperius is holding the hawk. And he hands Imperius the knife, and he says... If you, if the service ends peacefully and you hear the bells toll, you'll know that I've failed. And Imperius is like, well, what about Isabeau? And basically the father says, in, in a supremely arrogant male, <laughs> she couldn't possibly live without me kind of way, he says, I pray you make it quick. That's, that part's so, uh, I mean, like... On the one hand, it's the 80s, so you're like, was it as weird then no, as it is now that he's making the decision for her that she be put out of her misery? No, it's just, I mean, it's high romance. So or, it's, or was it just like, they're just trying to set up this... Uh... He basically says, I don't want to doom her to this half-life by herself. 
Well, she's perfectly capable of, of killing her, of taking her own life later if she so chose to do. Yeah. You're right. She is capable of that. Um, but he tries to take that agency out of her hands and says, I want you to kill my girlfriend while she's helpless if you hear the bells go off. Uh, so we, I guess my point was, was it just, was it a product of the time or was it just like a poor attempt at getting uh, more tension in the scene about, oh, will she show up or not? Like, I'm going to say a little column A and a little Yeah, a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, Imperius really doesn't want to do this, but he reluctantly kind of sort of nods that he'll do it, I guess. Um, and then the next scene, now that we see, we, we see Philippe come up through the grate, the guards see him coming out of the grate, and they head to stop him, but slowly. Well, they don't want to disrupt the church. They don't service. want to disrupt the church service because it's the bishop, and so they want to do things. They want to keep things on the on the, the down yeah. low, and they're trying to take care of it. But they don't move fast enough. And he gets to the doors, unbars them, and throws wide the main gate of the church. And in comes Navarre in full battle regalia, and he is looking badass in what I always thought was the coolest helmet I ever saw. Pretty sweet helmet. It's like a triple visor. It's like a like really chromy kind of. Uh, steel, three three strips of chrome going across the face. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned this when we were watching the movie, but like the costume work in this whole thing is awesome. Yeah, it like, really is. He like, no, I mean, like especially Navarre looks badass, but he's supposed to. But like, I thought everyone looked the, really well done. The bishop's like, guards looked great. Yeah, and the bishop himself looked pretty cool, and his yeah. yeah, everybody looked good. Even well, Michelle Pfeiffer can wear a sheet like nobody's business. But. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so one of the best she wears in the business. She really is. In fact, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a known fact. Um, but she, she, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Navarro comes through the gates on his horse, and he is horseback riding into the church. Uh, again, Goliath doing his super prancy church stepping <laughs> because he put on his Sunday best for this. Um, and it's dead quiet. Everyone is either to the one side of the church or the other, and there are no pews. It is wide no, open. It is a standing church. It is a standing room only. There's wide open in the down the center of the church for plenty of horse play to happen, <laughs> and that's a good thing because you're going to need that room in a second. Um, this is about the time that the uh, the soundtrack really starts to kick into gear. Oh yeah, and I will say that uh, while I liked the soundtrack for the like the theme song when you're opening the movie. But every time there was like a fight scene, it just pulled me out of it, man. Like, it's just so like just poorly, poor music choice. Like, it was always it the same. Fit. It's not like the theme varied depending no. on what was happening. Like there is a, the there is a part like later on in this fight where it switches to the part of the theme that I like when things are getting serious. But like the generic "we're having a fight" music mm -hmm. is just awful. It's so bad. Yeah, um, I forgot to mention that. Uh, previously, Navarre had asked Philippe for his ancestral sword, and Philippe told him, uh, it's gone. It went into the ice when you were in the ice, and I was trying to pull you out of the water. It's gone. And, you know, Navarre's really upset about it, but there's not much he can do. Um, well, I guess the intention there was, like, if you don't maybe, have your sword, he, yeah, maybe he won't kill the bishop if he doesn't have his special sword he's supposed to do it yeah. with, but, like, you, you didn't give a crap. He, he brought didn't just the an first eye, really. sword he found. Um, so he's he doesn't have his ancestral sword with him in this scene, but he has a sword. Um, 
And he proceeds to joust with the captain of the guard, Marquette, who also is on his horse in church. And the two of them <laughs> charge at each other. Um, and then they knock each other off their horses. They have a whole fight. And the fight with Marquette goes a long while. And it's like... Keep it, in mind, this is like a, a solid two-hour movie. It ends a couple of times. Like, the fight with Marquette, you think yeah. it's over, like, three it times. It just keeps going, man. And, like, they hadn't built Marquette up to be no. a good fighter. He was not like, a threat like He this. kept getting, like, you know, beaten handily in the bar scene. And, like, you know, they have this, like, <laughs> like, scene with, like, you know, with the Philippe, like, dodging him and stuff like that. So, like, at no time do you think that, like, this should be a good fight. Yeah. You really think that Etienne should just end him immediately, and then and get maybe on the, with the maybe the bishop will start throwing fireballs. You don't know what that bishop can or can't do. Fireballs would have been awesome. They're just something. Like maybe if during this fight the bishop is like, right. like you, you get the feeling that that's going to be the boss level. Right? Yeah, but, he's the but, boss fight. But no, Marquette's the boss level. No, that's uh, that's yeah. the way they went with this. Anyway, um, they fight. I think it was. A stray, uh, was it a stray crossbow bolt or something? Goes flying through the, the 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 skylight in the center of the church, and all that stained glass comes raining down on everybody. Again, no one, no, no one's in the middle except except the two combatants. <laughs> um, but Navarre looks up into the sky, and there, finally, he sees the eclipse. He sees the eclipse. A He's day like, oh, a that's right, that riddle that insane. we couldn't figure out, even though there's only one thing it possibly could have been. Yes. That's okay. And he shouts, "Imperious, wait!" And at that point, he abandons his his battle with Marquette, with the bishop. He just turns and heads to the back, to the front gates of the church, to to go tell Imperius, "Don't stab the hawk." Right. I get what's supposed to happen now, and he starts to run, but Marquette is not done fighting him, and he starts fighting him again. And though so they fight, 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 a knife goes flying, and there was a there was a guard up near the bell tower who was going to, uh, I guess, going to slide down the ropes to help the captain. Yeah, I, they they weren't they didn't understand why ringing the bells mattered. They no. were just trying to come down and help. And he jumps onto the rope to slide down to help his captain, which causes the bells to toll. And the second he hears the bells tolling, we flash over to Imperius, who's holding the hawk with a knife to its throat. <laughs> And uh, then back to Navarre, who says, Imperius! And then he says, please, make it quick. And then he turns back to deal with Marquette. He ends up... He renewed... says something like, I can still kill you, yeah. Yeah, renewed fighting. They, they kill the guard who was pulling on the bell rope. Uh, Navarre assumes the worst has already happened to Isabel now. And um, what we don't know is... What he doesn't know is that Philippe had smuggled in his ancestral sword underneath the wagon, had brought it with him, and slides it out onto the floor. Um, and so it's out on the floor there for the use. Navarre hasn't picked it up yet, but it's there. For the, for the, for the <laughs> I don't know if you didn't see it or what. There was a scene where they both don't have weapons, and like he's looking around for a weapon. He doesn't grab that. He doesn't grab that. He picks up the regular sword, and you're like, dude, it's right there. <laughs> yes. I mean, agreed, it's still a sword and it'll still stab, but it's not the sword. Yeah, it's not the one that'll cut that guy in half. But anyway, he strolls right up, because now he's defeated Marquette, and he strolls up to the bishop, and the bishop has the smarmiest damn look on his face, and all he says is, but kill me, Navarre, and the curse will never be broken. <laughs> we must think of Isabel. 
And the bar says, Isabeau is dead. And the look that you see pass on the, the bishop's face as he suddenly goes from complete upper hand to I'm oh, about shit. to die yeah. is just priceless. Um, but there, he, he's, he's about to, to stab the bishop. He's like, God damn you to hell. He's about to stab the bishop, but before he can, he hears his name shouted from the back of the church, and he turns, and there she is. Isabeau is standing at the back of the church. Because it's the eclipse, she can be human at the same time as him. And she is, and not only is she human, but the sun is shining through her, backlighting her. <laughs> and because of the Pat Benatar hair, it looks very music video. It's, <laughs> it's so, it looks amazing. It's like, turn around, bright eyes. And she's there. Um, he can't believe it. And he runs to her. She is happy to see him, but she keeps moving past him, right up to the bishop. She walks up to the bishop, and she does a, there's a touch that I just love. She holds in front of the bishop the little leather thong things that used to be wrapped around, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Navarre's wrist that the hawk would land on. Yeah. Uh, she's holding those two thong things in her hands, and she drops them in front of his face as just like an F you. Yeah, like, I am a human. I man. thought they were the things that were tied to the hawk's feet. There, maybe that's what it is. It's it's whichever. It's something to do with the the landing and and standing on the arm. Well, I think set. it's like okay. So like the hawk comes and lands on your arm. I think you actually like hook it on. Okay. So that it won't just like fly away. But and whatever. She's that... like no longer am I chained by right. anything. It's a very symbolic cutting yeah, of yeah. the chains. That's basically the thing. Um, and so it, <laughs> Navarre comes up. He's got his sword. He points it at the bishop. He says, look at her. And the bishop is like shaking and won't look up. And he says, look at her. And he looks at her. Now look at me. Now look at us. <laughs> and then you hear Imperius, who's, who's come up next to Philippe at, by this point in the, in the church. He says, that's it. The curse is broken. It's funny because there's no like, I don't know what I expected. I expected like a Shrek explosion moment of or light. something where it's just like, nope. and it's just like, I, I hope it's broken. I liked that there was no flash or sound or anything i just would have liked maybe just like a sense of relief as they felt it go or something like i didn't i didn't i'm not looking for any visual effects i just like something so that you're like they know right um then the most stupid thing they could possibly do the two of them do they both isabeau and navarre turn their backs <laughs> on the bishop and walk to the center of the church and they start laughing and holding each other and smiling and kissing and, and enjoying their freedom while the bishop raises his bishop staff, well, they, they had pre-established that his bishop scepter staff thing had a knife on the end of it. Right, little pointy knife at the end about like a maybe a foot long. Yeah, it, it, could, it could kill somebody. And he raises it. And what, what previously, when Imperius was telling the story of the curse, he said the bishop had sworn if he could not have her then no man would. Yeah. And so when he raises his pointy bishop stick now behind her, he comes up behind Isabel and he says, then no man shall. And he's going to clearly impale her because she's been the target of his obsession this entire time. Before he can, however, Imperius and Philippe cry out to warn Navarre. Um, Navarre has grabbed... His ancestral sword off the ground, which was now where they were standing. 
flings it through the air, like he did at Philippe in the tree earlier in the film. So we've established his incredible brute strength. By far the hardest weapon around to yeah. throw. He has a crossbow that is designed to fly through the air. Let's not forget that. But this thing, the sword, goes flying through the air, impales the bishop with enough force that it causes him to fly back into his bishop's throne, and he's impaled up to the hilt and to the chest through the throne. And he is dead. Uh, I'd also like to mention that, like, I, I think this is an 80s thing, because I think it happened a lot in horror movies at the time, too, but whenever there is a death like this... It immediately cuts to everyone, like, looking away. Like, oh, God. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> it happens, like, four or five times in the movie. And, like, even uh, I had a note that when um, Navarre kills the captain of the guard, even the bishop looks away. He's like, oh. Yeah, that's true, huh? And it's just like, everyone's just like, oh. Oh, the murder. And it's but, like, this is what you do. But what Why I love, are you looking away? What I love about this scene is that all the nobles just stand around. Yeah, no one like, is upset that someone just murdered the bishop in the most violent way possible. They don't know the backstory on this. Yeah. They should all be attacking They knew the people. rumors. I guess so. You know, I never liked that bishop. Actually, they don't say anything. They're just like, hmm. Not only that, when the camera pulls away at the end, some I of them are the like... I sermon this week was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> now... Now, what were we meant to take away from that? Hmm. Yeah. Then not only that, when the camera pulls away at the very end, some of them are, like, clapping at the... Oh, hooray. <laughs> yeah. like, I'd be ding like, dong this is a reference to Ecclesiastes. Ding dong, the bishop's dead. <laughs> um, and, and there's much rejoicing, and Philippe and... This, they, the camera pans on Philippe and Imperius, who are in tears, holding each other and crying and kissing each other on the cheeks. It's very sweet. Um, and that's the end of the movie. Uh, Navarre and Isabeau hold each other up and, and glorify in the fact that they can touch each other as humans again. And as Philippe and Imperius walk out of the church, leaving the two lovers to their moment, uh, Imperius says something along the lines of, I fully intend to, to meet you at the gates, at the pearly gates, little thief, and don't you disappoint me. And Philippe says, uh, I'll be there, father, even if I have to pick the lock. <laughs> and see. Um, so that is Lady Hockey. Old Lady Hockey. Um, I, I, I gotta say, I've seen it a lot. I've seen it a lot. I hadn't seen it in a while uh, when we watched it the other night. But I still feel like this movie, pretty solid. It holds together well. It's a really good movie. Yeah. I mean, like, it's not without a couple issues if I'm in the mood to pick at them. Wouldn't be any fun if it was. Um, I, the pacing's a little iffy, but, like... To be fair, at the time in the 80s, like, films were not paced as well. Like, there are a few and far between, like, really tightly paced 80s movies. Yeah. Um, and this one is not one of those. Like, you get this, you know, the middle of the movie is basically um, the hawk getting shot, and then, like, he, you have the reveal of what the curse is, and now... Uh, um, Philippe's on board and all this stuff and then the movie grinds to a halt mm. they are just traveling and having conversations for like the next 45 minutes yeah. and then they're like I know let's take this completely arbitrary thing about which day we show up on and let's put a, let's put this wolf hey, the in eclipse a... of the moon is not arbitrary it happens on a but certain but it didn't have day. to be arbitrary like if this whole thing is divine anyway like it could have just been the right day like it's true. And so, and then, like, 
I don't know. I also think the wisdom of digging a hole to keep a wolf anywhere is super dumb. Well, There's, that's why. If you can climb out, that wolf can climb out. He can jump all over your face, like or your no or way, your chest as it turns there's out. There's no way he couldn't have gotten out of that. Um, but even so, still, a oh, pretty, no, no, pretty I'm, great I'm just, movie. I'm, I feel like with the, all the issues I have with the movie, like the soundtrack has some issues, and then like the pacing, like are just very much products of the time. Yeah. I think it's about as good as it could have been. Yeah, I, I love this movie, and it's I a think, very good script. I thought the characters were all really well done. Yeah, and um, and and like we, I mean, we've already talked about it. Uh, we have a. I don't think we gave you guys a really good idea. You got to watch this movie to really understand um, the nuances of the bishop and his performance. And how young everyone is. And Rutger Hauer young... is is like a little baby, and you're like, because you know what? I've seen Blade Runner like a thousand right. times. He's no Roy Batty. One of my favorites, and so like I always just in my head, he's a villain. He has a very good villainous presence, and then he just shows up as, you know, like the dashing hero, and you're like, you know what? He's nailing he, that. He is a dashing hero in this movie, and you're right. I always think of him in a villain role. Mm-hmm. Um, but here he shines as a very heroic character. And Matthew Broderick, and you say baby. Matthew Broderick is a baby in this movie. You know, one of the notes I had is I felt like the script wrote the part for Philippe as a little bit older person. You, th- you didn't think it was, you thought maybe it was stretching things for someone that young to speak that way? Or behave that way? All of it. Okay. I feel like Broderick must have just killed it in the, um, in the audition. In the audition, and they were just like, you know what? You know, we had the ideas for like someone in their thirties or forties who was just kind of wiry and crazy, but like you are killing this. And um, I think he did do a great job, but like, there's every now and then something would come up, and I'm like, did they mean for him to like like he's young and spry? Like he's if he's eighteen, he's I'll tell you something. Barely, I would not mind knowing like Philippe the even earlier years. Like, I want to know how he ended up in the Dungeon of Aqua. Like, he so obviously... spoken He obviously had some sort of really great life education before this point because he right. he is a well-rounded adventurer. You know, like, he's a thief and he wants to avoid that's, trouble. That's kind of where I got with, like, I feel like he's he's seen some stuff and it's like... I don't know. Maybe the prequel will give us all that we need we'll, to justify we'll find out. I don't know. Um... So the other the option then, um, if we're both saying that this is definitely worth another go round, uh, this is definitely a, a jewel that Hollywood should mine again. How would you do it? Would you change anything? What would you change if you had to? You said you knew some stuff right off the bat when we were watching it that you you think you would uh, go with. Well, I mean, again, most of it's like just kind of the '80s issues of it, and like that's again, it's not this film's fault. It was filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I mean. And again, it was style choices. Like, you know what? I just mentioned Blade Runner as a movie I really like, but it's slow as shit. So, oh, like, you I, know, like, I may get some some hate mail on this. Um, again, Illuminati's podcast. That's Illumin the number eight zero s podcast <laughs> at gmail.com. But you're right. Uh, Blade Runner is. I can't watch Blade Runner. It's too slow. Nothing happens in that movie. It just takes. You, you you say that you love that movie, right? Yeah. I've watched that movie a couple of times, and it's so dark, and and not a lot happens in that movie. I mean, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't love I, it the way other people tell me it's... I think I might have more fun watching, like, 
uh, it with the director's commentary and like the behind the scenes stuff, then actually watching the movie, like the how they did everything and just what it was for the time was really unprecedented and stuff. And like, okay. I, I really like that stuff about it. The other thing is I've heard there's like seven different cuts of the movie and they changed radically from cut to cut. Well, the so, ending changes radically. And, okay. So then so. I don't know which one I've seen, but anyway, um, well, I, I did have some ideas of things that I probably would want to change if they were to revisit this today. Okay. Number one, this, I don't know. This, I thought this was a, a a gimme, but oh, I'm sorry. Just to interrupt you, Matthew Broderick should play the old priest in the new version. Oh, I love, <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah, I love Gotta that idea. It. That's genius. Ooh, yeah, he could be imperious. That's a great. Um, and of course, Mickey Rourke as <laughs> Navarre. We've already established that. <laughs> Mickey Rourke, the action hero of our time, 2018. <laughs> Uh, it's typecasting, but still, it works for a reason. Um, no, what I was going to say was that that freaking awesome double crossbow. I would make it smaller, still a double crossbow, but slenderer, and I would make it. I think it's in the hands of the wrong character. I would make that Isabeau's weapon. It is a weapon that shoots feathered. Okay. Items. Yeah. She is Lady Hawk. It's small. She no, you're right. She should be carrying that. She should be carrying that. And, she, and like he can use it when it's his turn too. <laughs> but like he he it has should his be her ancestral weapon. sword. He already has his special weapon, right? You're right. Give that He's got her. two special weapons, and she has like one. She has like knife. a knife that's used for cutting steak. <laughs> he gave her like a yeah. butter knife and no dress. Like don't hurt yourself. <laughs> gave me a butter knife and no dress. Um, but I think she and that would enable her character to kick a little more ass too. Like in in fight scenes, like maybe we have Isabeau. You I know, think Isabeau versus the Hunter should be like a legit yeah. like. No, she's willing to fight for. Uh, I want to see her more warriored up. Um, in today's uh, uh, take, I would I would make her a tougher, more able-bodied fighter. Um, just holding up her end of the the deal. Um, so, <laughs> quick side note: <laughs> when I was a kid and uh, I was making up superhero characters. Uh, with my friend Billy Ryan, shout out Billy Ryan. Uh, uh, back in New Jersey, um, I had all kinds of superhero characters I created. One of them was a superhero lady crime fighter named Lady Hawk. Uh oh. And her weapon of choice. Copyright was violation. A crossbow. <laughs> uh, she had like a kind of a uh, feather motif costume, you know, kind of a Batmanish cowl, but with a like a hawk beak over the front, sort of like Hawkman or Hawkgore. But she shot the crossbow, and the crossbow. Had instead of the um, instead of the arrowhead, mm-hmm. it had like a sharpened hawk's head. <laughs> you know, like nice. you can see the little beak there, yeah. so that then the police would find these things embedded in the like, in the walls and be like, "Lady Hawk was Lady here." Lady Hawk was here. I love it. So uh, yeah, call back to my my childhood there. Um, so I would definitely put that in the movie. Absolutely. <laughs> that's how you get people in the seats. Oh, and that's a good toy to sell in conjunction with the <laughs> that's film. That's right. Oh, what, what are, they, what are we even thinking? Lady Hawk crossbow. Oh, absolutely. See? Come on, guys. This writes itself. Um, the other thing I would do is... I thought... I would make Navarre's wolf stay with Isabeau during the night as more like a domestic kind of protector. I, I like that idea a lot. I feel like they didn't do that because... 
like there's a lot of animal handling going on here and like sure. that is legitimately a wolf yeah but it's and not like, unheard of to have domesticated wolves I know I just feel like they they got like a big wolf that looks dangerous and like it probably was Hell, so they didn't do yeah it. but I mean back in late 1500s early 1600s if you had a dog it was probably a domesticated wolf it wasn't like people had Pomeranians think people had dogs people had dogs okay people have had dogs since like caveman times Sure. Look, I had our boys in the Illuminati's lab <laughs> do some research, and they assured me. Well, I would, never, had dogs. I would never go against the boys' research. You better not. We're they gonna, know what's up. We're going to get complaints. Um, but yeah, her walking around with a badass wolf and a right. double crossbow would be kind of kind of rad. And not only that, a it ups her badassery, but b um, it it allows for some more humorous interaction with Philippe too, if he has to watch the the wolf that's protecting her all the time when, yeah. he's, when he's falling in love with her and falling over himself around her <laughs> uh, I think the, the growl and the warnings from the wolf would be good opportunities um, and the last thing I think I would change is the character of Marquette could have been a lot more interesting like you said they there's tur- definitely some history there and they set him up to be this this awesome fighter but they didn't put in the work to make him this awesome like fighter. I almost uh, I almost got the impression they intended for Marquette and uh, Navarre to have been friends back in the day, and he kind of turned on him because well, he was ordered to and stuff. And like, I think they sh- they could have. It's great that. that you said that because that's exactly what I wrote down. I wanted them to have more of a history um, with Navarre. I thought maybe if he had been more conflicted about fighting Navarre um, instead of just being just the bishop's straight lackey the way he was in the film, he just was happy to do evil on behalf of the bishop instead of that he could have been you know just a soldier who was following the commands of the church the way his captain had trained him to do all that time and like you know you could even have this whole thing where he doesn't believe the stuff and the curse and none of that and like when he finds out it was true right he's like oh wait not only that I would I love that I have him do that exactly where he where at the church scene where he breaks the curse and they he finds out it's true um, I would have instead of the ridiculous eight foot sword flying through the air and impaling, <laughs> when you they turn their back the on the bishop I would have the bishop run and go to get his things and leave and have him in the room getting his things to, to, to run and plot his revenge for another day I would have Marquette catch up with the bishop and say you know you made me betray my friends yeah, and then all this, made a deal all this with the time devil. you lied you said time to go meet him yeah <sighs> Very good. See? See? Lady Hawk 2. The Reckoning. Let's do it. By Kelly and Brent. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's a more satisfying character of Marquette, first of all. And maybe a more satisfying death for the bishop. You can play the bishop. <laughs> and I'll play uh, Philippe. It would be great. I can and al- then we get one of the Hemsworths to do... Uh... <laughs> I can already say, is subble. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I would change. Um, I think I think this is some this is a property Hollywood wants to take another look at. Definitely, they won't. They won't. But if they listen to this podcast, they will. My boys in the lab assure me. <laughs> <laughs> Very on top of things, these boys. Uh, I don't want to give our our many many listeners. The impression that it's just the boys in the lab too. There are there are women in the lab who are. It's a very equal opportunity yes, lab. Valued members of our team, 
that is non-existent. All the good ones are girls. Yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, that's that's Lady Hawk, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, we hope you will tune in next time for another exciting installment of this podcast. Uh, until then, please uh, Rubik's your cubes and uh, pet your do, Furbies and do something else, Agus. <laughs> we'll see you next time, everybody. See ya.